0: hopefully you've still got your Bibles in front of you or your phones in front of you, and we're going to be working through uh, those verses, uh, that chapter this evening. So uh, it's a good habit to, to keep your Bible in front of you. It's, it's actually been good looking around. Some people have got Bible apps, and they've got multi-languages on their, their phones and on their, their tablets and stuff like that, which is wonderful. Uh, so uh, let's, let's follow along with God's Word. But as we do, that, let's pray as we ask for God's help this evening. Father, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you so much that you speak to us through it. This is a very familiar story for lots of us this evening. So please, Lord, it's not about just finding something new or trying to scratch around to try and find something new, but rather our desire, Lord, is that you might speak to us this evening. Lord, that your spirit might be at work, oh Lord, within our lives, within our heart, that you might help us to see the Lord Jesus clearly, that you might help us to own and to know. Uh, the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, the new life that we have in Christ Jesus, we pray, because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I already said this evening, lots of us here, we know the story of Jonah uh, pretty well. Lots of us have been brought up on it, and so some of us this evening are probably thinking, well, what's the point? Why are we doing this story over five weeks? Not just four weeks but why are we doing it over five weeks? I've heard the story so many times, but the problem is I think for lots of us this evening, we've been growing up with almost like a childlike understanding of the book of Jonah. For example, you know, I was at home and I thought, I'll rummage through my kids' books to see if I can find one of the kids' books that we would have used to teach our kids about Jonah. And I find this one, this is called Big Fish's Supper. This is the story of Jonah, from the perspective of a fish, okay? Based on a true story, all right? Big fish lived in the sea. He swallowed lots of little fish. Sometimes big fish swallowed middle sized fish. It's exciting, isn't it? One day he heard a lot of noise. There was a storm. A ship was sailing by. Throw the man overboard, a sailor shouted. Splash! A frightened man fell into the water. Help, shouted the man. Help, my name is Jonah. I have a message from God. With a gulp, Big Fish swallowed him. Big Fish felt very ill. (laughs) He didn't really like swallowing people. He swam to the beach and burp, out popped Jonah again. Jonah rushed off with his message from God. And Big Fish never ate another man or woman ah. And Jonah learned how difficult it is to run away from God. How did big fish help him to learn this? You can read the story of Jonah and the big fish in the book of Jonah, chapters 1 to 3. That's interesting, isn't it? There's actually four chapters in Jonah, but you can read it in chapters 1 to 3. Most kids' Bibles, they do the same thing, Uh, you know, looking from the perspective of, of human beings rather than the perspective of fish. You know, the message of Jonah is, you know, Jonah uh, is there. He's a prophet. God speaks to him, tells him to go to this naughty place called Nineveh. Uh, Jonah then is supposed to go to Nineveh, but he runs the opposite way. God sends a storm to stop Jonah. Jonah's throwing overboard, and he's swallowed up by a fish. In the belly of the fish, you know, Jonah repents. And so God sends him a second time to naughty Nineveh. Jonah preaches to naughty Nineveh and the Lord rewards Jonah's obedience by saving the entire city of Nineveh. And if you look through lots of kids' Bibles, that's where the story stops. The problem is with that kind of interpretation of the book is, where is chapter four? Because in chapter four, you know, if Jonah really repents, then why is Jonah sitting huffing and puffing and hoping that the city is going to be destroyed. Why is it at the end he's more concerned about this bush, this, this plant, than he is for 120,000 people living in the city of Nineveh? And once we begin to pull back the layers, we begin to discover there's a lot more going on in this story than what we thought of and what we were told as kids. We begin to see that it's really not really a story about what Jonah is doing for God, but rather what God is doing for Jonah and what God essentially, is doing for us in Christ. In verse 1, you know, we read that the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah, he was a Galilean prophet during the days of Jeroboam II. He was an accomplished Bible teacher. In 2 Kings chapter 14, we read of how he successfully counseled the king and how he rightly prophesied the expansion of Israel. The word of the Lord comes to this gifted teacher, this gifted, teach-tested, successful Galilean preacher. And there in verse 2 tells him, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up against me. The name Jonah, it means dove. God is sending Jonah with an olive branch to the people of Nineveh. But as we know, Jonah has another side of being a Dove, dove, and he flies away in the opposite direction to Tarshish. He tries to get as far away from God as he can. He gets up as God has commanded him. That much he does, but then he runs off in the opposite direction. And it's easy for us, isn't it, to be hard on poor old Jonah. I mean, how can Jonah run from God? Why does he run from God, especially? when he's had such a good track record of following him. But we get an idea of why Jonah ran when we look at the people that he is refusing to offer peace to. You know, at this point, um, I would have liked to have shown you a quote from one of the Ninevite kings, Ashur II, I was reading a quote from him this week, you know, explaining about and talking and boasting about how he, what he did to all those that he captured during battle. I would have loved to have shown you a quote from him, but to be honest, it was too graphic. It was so violent. It was so shocking that I couldn't show it, and I can't show it publicly to you this evening. It was that bad. I could have shown you you know, a famous stone panel from his son, Shamanasar depicting how he treated prisoners after they captured him. But again, I couldn't because the content would be too graphic. It would be too upsetting. One of the things that we must grasp is that these unspeakable acts of terrorism, who are they being done to? Well, they're being done to Jonah and to his family and to his friends and to his relatives and to his parents and even probably to his own kids. They were being murdered. They were being mutilated. They were being captured. They were being tortured by these Ninevites. And now Jonah is being called to go to the city that is right at the heart of the suffering of his people, and he's now being called to go and preach against it. And whenever we hear preach against it, we should surely, Sam, that's a good thing, you know, he's not being asked to go and say nice things. He's actually being called to go on with a bit of farm brimstone, you know, to preach against it. It could be, you know, the Jonah you know, really has a hunch that that's not really what he's going to be doing. He is going to be doing that, but he, he probably doesn't like the fact that he's going to have to do it because he has a hunch that something's going to happen. And we hear about that hunch again in chapter 4. There, Jonah tells us the real reason why he runs. He says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. This is whenever God forgives the city. He prays to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that you were slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah has a sneaking suspicion that God, because of his character, would forgive the Ninevites. And for him, that wasn't on. In chapter 4, verse 2 there, Jonah's quoting from the equivalent of the Old Testament Apostles' Creed. But he conveniently has left something. I'll just show you the original there in um, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7. What's missing? What is it that's missing? Tell me. Sorry, forgive. It's the F word. It's forgiveness. Either he's conveniently just forgotten about it, or he's just neglected it. But he can't even bring himself to use the word forgiveness. None of it deserves the full extent of God's holy wrath, not his mercy. See, the Ninevites in Jonah's eyes, they are beyond forgiving. They are object of God's holy wrath and nothing more. I mean, how is Jonah going to be able to show his face around Israel if he goes and preaches a message of forgiveness to Nineveh and then comes back to Israel, and people know he's the guy that brought forgiveness rather than wrath upon the Ninevites. How is he going to be able to show his face around Israel? It's because of God's goodness that Jonah runs. But what about us? How might we run from God? How might we be running from God? How might we be running from what God has called us to do? Sometimes we can run by hiding behind our personalities. You know, I sometimes hear people that come up to me and they say, Sam, I know that I should be more friendly to people, but I'm an introvert. That's just not my thing. People often say to me, Sam, you know, you're an extrovert. You do not understand how I feel. But extroverts can also run from what God has called them to be and to do. I have a very good friend of mine and he works and lives up in the Northern Territory and he goes out to remote communities around the Northern Territory and he says the way that he connects with indigenous leaders in the Northern Territory is he goes and he sits under a tree with leaders in the dirt and he sits in the dirt for three or four hours and doesn't say anything, just sits there quietly. That would kill me sitting for four hours, some of the introverts are going, oh man, the ideal calling (laughs) would be just bliss for me. The extroverts are going, oh my goodness, that that would just kill me. But if I can learn to keep quiet and keep my mouth shut so that I can, you know, can I do that in order to reach and to love my indigenous brothers and sisters and, and point them to Christ? But in the same way, the introverts need to learn to sometimes smile and just walk towards someone in love. Extroverts also need to reel it in and keep quiet and listen in love. Now we can hide behind our personalities and say, I can't do that because I'm an introvert. I can't do that because I'm an extrovert. But we can also use our circumstances to keep us from obedience. We don't like what God's asking us to do. And so we make excuses. What God is asking us to do, well, it's just too hard. We're too uncomfortable with with what God's asking us to do. We're too comfortable with our lives. We don't want to give up anything. We can run away because we believe that God is good, but we can also run away because we believe God is not good, that God doesn't really know what's best for us. And we can run because we want to stick it to God, or even we want to stick it to our parents. And so we run. How might you, how might we be running from God this evening? In verse 3, uh, Jonah knew that God was committed to Israel. That was where his presence was. That's where his name was. So for, for, so for a prophet like Jonah, in his mind, he saw and he equated God's presence, you know, with Israel in Israel within the boundaries of Israel. That's where God was, that's where his presence was. And so he finds a ship that will take him as far away from Israel as possible. And by doing that, he is thinking that he is moving as far away from God as he possibly can. And the writer wants to make it clear that, that Jonah wants to be, he wants to go completely a wall from God we read that he goes down into the boat. He's doing everything he can to go incognito. He's doing everything he can to get away from God, to get away from his presence. What about us? Where do we go to get away from God? Where do we run to to get away from the presence of God? Is it by leaving the church Is it by stopping going to community group? Is it by avoiding, you know, that awkward person at church who always asks you those difficult and uncomfortable questions? Is it, do you go to porn? Do you go to food or comfort or to work, to your career? Where do you go to to run away from God? Do you go to your phone? You know, who needs to speak to God 24 hours a day? Who needs to listen to God 24 hours a day? Who needs God's presence when you can have the presence of your phone in your bed with you, with the light glowing at nighttime, you know, and speaking to you 24 hours a day and you can listen to your phone and and anything you want and the whole, any question you have, you don't need to go to God, you can go to your phone. He'll give you all the answers that you ever need and ever want. Is that where we go to? instead of going to God. Where do you go to? Where do you try to get away from God? But running from God, you know, it isn't that straightforward. We read the Lord grew through a great wind into the sea and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. On the ship in the middle of the storm, we begin to see this direct comparison between Jonah, who's the man of faith, you know, he's the Christian, he's the one who represents faithful Israel. And there's a comparison between Jonah and the sailors who are the pagans, you know, the non-believers, those representing the pagan nations. And we read, you know, the sailors, they're afraid and they each cry out to their own God. And realizing that the various gods are not going to come to their rescue, they they then throw their ship's cargo into the sea to try and lighten the load. But where is Jonah? Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and he stretched out and he's just fallen into a deep sleep. Jonah has put the lives of these non-believers in danger. The ship is being flung all over the place. The bow's creaking. The ship's about to break up. The sailors are all calling out to their own gods for help. And what's Jonah doing? Well, Jonah's just stretched out and he's just sleeping like a baby. I mean, does he have no conscience? And the captain of the ship, he's, he's startled and, uh, and, and he comes to Jonah. And, and how can Jonah be asleep while the, the ship is almost sinking? And he says to him, what are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. That word get up is the same expression that God used to call Jonah to go to Nineveh in the first place. This is the second time he's being called into action. And again, Jonah refuses to obey. In reality, Jonah's faith, is being outshone by these non-believers, by these pack of pagans. And their faith is misplaced, but at least they're trying. You know, they say to themselves, come on, the sailors say, let's cast lots and then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble that we're in. So they cast lots and the lots singled out, Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us, who is to blame for the trouble we're in? What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? And he answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship." the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land." This is the first time that Jonah speaks, but his words are just as inconsistent as his actions. He is a true prophet, and yet he refuses to prophesy. He claims to be a Hebrew, he's living in a covenant relationship with the Lord, but he seems to be asleep to God's promises. He says he worships the Lord the God of the heavens, who is omnipresent and omnipotent, and yet he's trying to run away from him. He acknowledges that he worships the Lord, the God who made the sea and the land, and yet he's running away from God on the sea to another land, all of which are in God's jurisdiction. I mean, who runs from the God of the sea on a ship? You know, his response is completely inappropriate. He shows no remorse, no respect, no humility, takes no responsibility, and he offers no help. And once again, it's the non-believers who seem to be responding the appropriate way. Then the men were seized by a great fear. And they said to him, what have you done? The men knew that he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you? so that the sea will calm down for us, for the sea was getting worse and worse. Now they acknowledge that Jonah and his relationship with God, they're at the heart of their problem, the heart of their own situation. And it's only now that Jonah begins to respond. He says to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I am to blame for this great storm that is against you. You know, some people think that Jonah's being quite admirable here. He's doing the right thing. But again, Jonah doesn't throw himself into the sea to calm it down. He expects the sailors to pick him up and to throw him in. But the sailors, you know, they want to try and do their best to survive the storm without making the sacrifice. And so they, they turn to their own means in order to try to find their own salvation, in verse 13, nevertheless, the men, they rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Lord, please don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. You know, the activity of the sailors to try and save Jonah and their cries of, you know, of mercy to the Lord, they're, they're in sharp contrast to the silence of the text with regard to Jonah. Jonah doesn't seem to be capable even of just simple repentance. You know, he he could have sought forgiveness during the storm. If he knew that he was the source of the problem, why didn't he just say, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Perhaps like some of us here this evening, he prefers to believe in a God who only judges and doesn't forgive. We often hear that God is for us, but sometimes, and I've spoken to people who sometimes say they always feel that God's just working against them all the time. Maybe we're a bit suspicious that no matter how good we are, no matter what kind of life that we live, God seems to have it always in for us. Perhaps Jonah has come to the point that he would rather die than do what God's calling him to do. He says so in chapter 4, you know, whenever God relents and he forgives the city, you know, as, as Jonah's sitting there under that, that plant, under that bush, as he's sitting there, he said, God, I would prefer to die than for you to save these people. Perhaps deep down, you know, Jonah believes that the God of the sea is going to rescue him. But whatever he's thinking, he chooses to prolong the danger of these sailors by not acting sooner. The sailors' courage is to be admired, but also their resisting God's revealed will. You know, it's almost like as they're, as they're rowing harder, the storm seems to be pushing back. You know, God seems to be pushing back. there, doing it their way. God's pushing back the other way. And so they call out to the Lord, Lord, please don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows." I mean, these words are staggering, aren't they? Here are these idol worshippers in the midst of a storm. Their only exposure to faith is coming from this half-hearted, irresponsible, hypocritical preacher, and yet they are saved. Notice the amount of times that the, 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 uh, the writer uses the word Lord, knew the covenant name for God. You know, what, to what degree you know, are these sailors saved? We don't know, but we do know that the act of faith, of trusting in God's appointed sacrifice for them, saves them from certain death. In verse 17, we, we you know, realize just how we discover just how pointless it is to run from God. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. More on that again next week. The Lord, those words, but they could not. They're really the turning point in the whole story. But they could not. Salvation was going to come through God's chosen means. And it was going to come through God's chosen means, not by their own effort. The crew realized that they could not escape the storm of God's judgment by their own effort. It's only when they accept God's appointed sacrifice and they turn desperately to him that they find salvation. Salvation would come through the sacrifice of one man who was willing to lay down his life. And what's true for these sailors and for Jonah is also true for us. Our journey of faith that always begins with those words, I can't. I can't escape the storm of God's judgment by my own goodness I can't escape by my religious effort. I can't escape even by my good intentions. Nothing that I can do within myself can ever atone for how I have treated God and treated others. We are all the sailors in this story. We're all spilling the innocent blood of Jesus. And it's only whenever I accept God's appointed sacrifice in Jesus. The fact that Jesus is willing to lay down his life for me by throwing himself into the storm of God's judgment for me, it's only when I trust in him that I am saved and I find peace. And what's true at the moment of salvation is also true for us in our Christian walk because Jesus throws himself into the sea of God's wrath in order to save us, not only from judgment, but also from despair. You see, I can't. I can't be the perfect pastor that some of you expect me to be. You slash, okay? I know some of you is like, yeah, we know that. (laughs) But it's hard sometimes because I know that, that you're often disappointed with me. But I'm sorry, but I cannot be the perfect pastor that some of you expect me to be. I will disappoint you. And I'll keep disappointing you. I can't be the dad or the the husband or the friend that I expect myself to be. I can't do any of those things because I'm not Jesus. And that's okay. But I can depend on Jesus. I can depend on, on his righteousness and not my own. I can know that he's always with me. And he's promised to be with me. I can light, lean hard into him, and little by little, I can experience his love and his grace changing me and transforming me into his likeness, little by little, bit by bit. You know, I can't, I, I cannot be, you cannot be always the model of perfection in your family or in your church or in your workplace. And sometimes I think our zealousness of trying to be so, you know, pretending to being something that we're not, it it actually might end up turning us into cold, cynical, self-righteous and judgmental hypocrites, just like Jonah. You know, confessing our sin to one another, asking for forgiveness, admitting our mistakes and failures, asking for help, being sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, and, and at that moment we bring that sin and we confess that, we repent of that at that time. All of these ways are ways of helping each other to keep our eyes on Jesus. And all of those ways are ways of reminding us that He and not us is the author, He is the perfecter of our faith. It's not us. I also cannot, I cannot stop myself. Or others from running from God I can't do that. I can't stop anyone here from running, running away from God. I can 't do it. I don 't have the capacity I don 't have the strength. you don 't have the strength to live the Christian life. We don't have the Christian life we don 't have the, the strength even to make other people to help to make other people live the Christian life. none of us can do it. Well, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to seek and to save us. Luke 15, Jesus tells a bunch of parables and he tells those three famous parables to, to some Pharisees, to some hypocrites. And as he does that, one of those stories tells the story of the lost sheep. Jesus says that he's like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go and find the one to go and find us. And he spends days looking for us. He wades through rivers, he fights off wild animals, he climbs down cliffs, he does whatever it takes to get to us. And once he finds us, he picks us up and he carries us over rough terrain, through dangers, over many kilometers to get us home. And once he gets us home, he calls his neighbors to, to rejoice over us. You know, and sometimes, you know, you, you see books and stuff. That's how it's pictured, you know. It's almost like we are like neck warmers for Jesus. Um, but actually, it's, it's more like that. That's us as sheep, huge sheep, being carried on strong shoulders. A lot of the time, biting and kicking and nibbling as we go. You know, just constantly yanking and, and the whole time as the shepherd is trying to carry us home. But this is Jesus. This is Jesus responding to his father's call to get up and go to this world, to come to this world to save us and to deal with the sin and the evil and death that is in the world. This is Jesus responding in obedience to every command of his father. This is Jesus living the life that we could never live. This is Jesus dying the death that we should have died. This is Jesus saving us. This is Jesus rising from the dead to give us new life. This is Jesus sending his spirit, his presence, to live in us, to live with us. This is Jesus setting us apart. This is Jesus making us his own. This is Jesus carrying us. This is Jesus sustaining us. This is Jesus sanctifying us, justifying us, keeping us by his grace eternally. This is Jesus rejoicing over you, rejoicing over us eternally. Do you ever consider that? Jesus rejoices. Zephaniah chapter 3 talks about like he, he, he sings love songs over us, his people. This is Jesus rejoicing over you, rejoicing over us, his people. And this is Jesus determined to carry us home, to bring us, each of us, as his children, home. Let's pray about that right now. Let's pray.